Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. My name is Kimberly Cook, and I'm the Assistant Director here at the Hendricks Center at DTS. And today, we are going to be talking about the origin of the soul. Are you ready? Here we go. Um, We are joined. For the record, it sounds a little bit mystical, and maybe it is, but we'll see about that to help us out and to make sure that we don't go too far off the path. We are joined by a very distinguished guest. His name is Joshua Ferris. He's with the Missional University and author of a brand new book called Creation of Self. And he's currently a Humboldt Experienced Researcher Research Fellow at the University of Bochum, Germany. Um, for the record, you don't hear Humboldt Fellow very often. That's how distinguished he is. So Joshua, thank you so much for being here today. Hey, thank you, Kimberly. It's good to be with you. Nice to meet you virtually. At least. Yes, I know, right? Um, yes. We, I think, to start off with, uh, your specialty is at least partially in what's called theological anthropology, uh, and let's just introduce people to what that even is <laughs> and how did you end up thinking about those things and thinking about the theology of humanity and um, yeah, let's start there and then we'll talk about the soul in a second. Great. Yeah. So uh, theological anthropology is broadly the study of the anthropos, what it means to be a human being in a theological context. And so um, a variety of questions come up, a broad set of questions that frame several biblical and theological issues come up uh, regarding the anthropos or the human being and what it means to be human. Uh, namely, the the Imago Dei, what it means to be created in the image of God, or what it means to be uh, constituted, what it is that we are, what it means to have a heart or a soul or a body, and these sorts of things, and how it is that we relate to both God and creation. And so, uh, you could construe this as a discipline or a set of subjects that fall under creation, a specific subset of creation and how God relates to his creation, particularly human creation, his uh, highest creation, um, how, depending on how you construe that. Um, and so, kind of my story, I got into it really when I was in seminary at uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and uh, in Systematic Theology two class. I remember where we uh, picked up on various topics within theological anthropology Uh, like uh, the issue of gender and gender roles and uh, offices within the church and how we understand um, the relationship between husband and wife and these sorts of issues, but also more more fundamentally what it means to be uh, image bearers of God, what it means to be an Imago Dei bearer, the image of God, and how that relates to the covenants and these sorts of issues. And so I became really fascinated with that subject in that in that particular course, and simultaneously I was really interested in um, uh, uh, the soul, what we'll talk about, and uh, human constitution, which is one facet of the sort of discussion in theological anthropology and how that impacts other. Uh, issues within theological anthropology. And um, so I was simultaneously studying philosophy, consciousness, and philosophy of mind, um, subjects in their own right that are vast and complicated and detailed, Mm -hmm. but also have uh, some overlap with 
theological anthropology more broadly, because at the end of the day, I think somebody like Stephen Priest said something like, ultimately, we are theological beings. And so um, there's something even that the philosophical world cannot answer about what it means to be a human being. And so... um, uh, so that kind of sent me on my journey and simultaneously, as I was thinking about the human being and in, in theology and in biblical studies and how, how the biblical covenants work out and understanding of the human, I was also studying philosophy and fascinated with that. And so I wanted to bridge those worlds. And I ended up studying at the university of Bristol in England under, um, my supervisor, my doctoral supervisor, Oliver Crisp, mm-hmm. who was, um, uh, very influential on me. I read his book actually in seminary, one of his books on divinity and humanity. And I said, you know, I love the philosophers and I love the Bible guys, but I want to do what he's doing and I want to write like him. So I want to study hmm. under him. So that's where I went. And I continued the study and I became fascinated with the sort of exchange between philosophy of mind and theological anthropology and how they interact and I think how they inform one another. And um, so that's where the journey kind of began. And people often have asked over the years, are you a philosopher? Are you a theologian? And most of the time I don't have an answer for them and I, I don't really care to answer. But I guess it would be theologian, uh, theologian would be the proper answer because everything that I think about when I'm thinking about or reading through detailed philosophical works, I always have these broader theological questions in mind that I want to try to answer or touch or scratch on at least. And so even when I'm doing more technical philosophy, it's always aimed at broader theological Mm -hmm. questions, which I think um, philosophy can aid in the process, but it is in itself insufficient for answering completely. And so that's a bit about kind of my journey and why I got into the study and um, some of the influences therein. Yeah. Well, fascinating. So you said the soul was a part of what even initially sparked your interest to go down that path. What was it about the conversations about the soul that stood out to you? Yeah, well, there were several things. I mean, so uh, one was the, the the question of human constitution. When I started reading some of the more historical theological sources, it seemed to me that they were always working within some kind of um, philosophical framework, for one thing. Even if it wasn't overt or explicit, they had philosophical assumptions that were um, impinging upon or informing their hermeneutic or mm-hmm. how they were reading the Bible, how they were putting together systematic systematically putting together doctrinal issues related to the human. And even more so, they had some sort of philosophical anthropology that was informing how it is that they were thinking about uh, other theological issues concerning the human being. And so, uh, it seemed to me they always uh, had some kind of philosophical anthropology framework that was in the background in shaping or forming in some way how they were thinking about the human and even how they were thinking about the Imago Dei. So, um, this became pretty clear reading a lot of the Reformed scholastics and then reading uh, some of the, the later modern theologians and philosophical theologians, of course, Rene Descartes and, and Leibniz and others. But even prior to that, in the medieval period, they were working with explicit philosophical frameworks, but also they were working with some kind of view, some sort of view about the constitution of the human being. And that seemed to impact in varying ways 
subtle and some ways more deep and detailed uh, other doctrinal issues that they had in mind when they were considering what it means to be human. And so uh, I started picking up on that and I became fascinated with that. And it seemed to me that at some level, the constitution question touched upon every other doctrinal issue Hmm. in terms of um, what it means to be human uh, from a theological uh, perspective. And so uh, of course, when you look at some of the um, the older sort of theological statements, the creedal statements, some of the confessional statements, they too are using explicit um, language that is framing how they're thinking about um, the human being from a, I guess, kind of a constitution perspective or a philosophical anthropology. And so um, in almost every case, they're using language of body and soul. And I don't think that's unintentional or accidental, and nor can it be if there is anything that we call the tradition, if there is such a thing, <laughs> which is a question, right? Uh, if there is such a thing, I don't think we can uh, so quickly um, be done with the language that they used or be so um, open to dismissing the language that they were using in how, how they were framing these, these carefully constructed theological statements. And so the soul language is, is present and arguably at the center of how the theological um, world is um, thinking about the human early on and even into the reform period and into uh, especially some of the modern debates about uh, theology. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so that became important to me. And I think, and I still believe that now that the soul is central. So there are many today who are, you know, biblical scholars, who are theologians, who have become much more open to the possibility that we can excise any sort of soul language. Well, that's what I was just about to bring up, the idea that, like, this isn't, you know, we're talking about philosophy and, you know, mentioning all of these different things about the constitution of the human being and, you know, all of these kind of amorphous concepts. But but really, which that's in no way, I mean, I live in amorphous concepts, too, so that's not against you. But, but it really has very tangible, like, on-the-ground implications for, you know, especially when we talk, start talking about science and neuroscience and some of the technology and everything that's coming out. So can you speak to that and just how, especially like you're talking about the, the fact that soul language and reference to an immaterial part of our being, human beings, has been a part of the Christian tradition for so long. And to, to dismiss it in light of current, trends um, is worth a conversation and worth thinking through. So can you speak to like, how, how does that actually like on the ground impact how we interact with each other and think about ourselves and think about technology and science? Yeah. Yeah. That's a big question. So there's a lot of angles to (laughs) Matt in terms of trying to answer that. or You don't have to hit all the points. (laughs) (laughs) So I think there's obviously a danger that has been driving, or a couple of dangers, one's more philosophical, one's more theological, that's been driving a lot of theological discussions as of late and has shaped the theological discussions around the human being that have moved people away from uh, um, 
an actual commitment to the soul and the embrace of, the, or at least the possibility that within orthodoxy, broadly speaking, or Christian belief that's that's somehow consistent with um, biblical teaching uh, and a high degree of authority, uh, biblical authority, uh, there's a much more openness to the fact that maybe we are just physical beings and not ensouled beings. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the I think the impulse there is is that standing behind that isn't necessarily wrong, and that's the impulse of some sort of holistic integrity between the soul and body or the mind and body or the human being as, a, as an integrated being that's not divided. And so that there's a lot of literature on that, obviously, and, and um, over many years. There's the, obviously the theological side to this, and, and that is the emphasis on, there was a famous article by Oscar Coleman a long you know, some time ago that uh, raised the question about um, either the immortality of the soul or the resurrection of the body, which, which anyone familiar with the literature knows that it's, it's, it's bringing up a whole host of issues in terms of how, right, Greek philosophy integrates with theology mm-hmm. and, and all sorts of other questions about philosophy and its information in terms of how it integrates or informs how we do theology and the like. And then later, uh, theological literature has really developed in a way that, some of it has developed in a way that the primary sort of impulse and telos of the human being is the resurrection of the body and the immortality of the soul or the soul itself is really quite incidental or um, at least not all that important, maybe not even necessary. I think that, um, so that's a whole lot of context there um, of the impulse, which I think um, the impulse isn't, all of it's not wrong, but I think um, to go so far as to say, oh, we can get rid of the soul. It's perfectly respectable within Orthodox Christian teaching to be a physicalist or something, a physicalist being that the view that we are just, well, physical beings through and through, that we are, um, we do not have this sort of immaterial substance or the mm-hmm. soulish substance that's that's uh, strongly distinct from our bodies and even could be independent of our bodies. Um, I think that's uh, probably uh, mistaken. I'm not so sympathetic to the physicalists. Um, and I think um, this stands behind the question, uh, the, the, the discussion we're going to have about the origin of the soul. Um, when we look at the creedal statements and confessional statements, maybe you would claim it's not a dogmatic teaching that we have to hold to some sort of philosophical principle like the soul. Um, the Greek language is incidental to the, the creedal language and the confessional uh, statements and these uh, confessional symbols of the Reformed tradition, et cetera, et cetera. You might take that sort of line. I think that would be mistaken because it seems to me a couple of things need to be kept in mind when thinking about broader orthodoxy and creedal and confessional standards. One is that um, not only is the language so prominent throughout these statements so as to be at least it should raise the question why is it so prominent mm-hmm. but um the uh the language of the imago day is centered or couched in um the 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 soul language or the spirit and how uh, the ancients the medievals and the reformed scholastics understood the soul as that substantial part of human beings that connects them to God, that transcendent part that makes them or connects them to God. 
But so I would see that is important. Of course, the response is going to be, well, there's a whole sort of philosophical psychology that we've now rejected and and the like. Um, But I think that we would be throwing kind of the baby out with the bathwater by throwing out the soul in the process. The other thing is that we need to keep in mind is it's it's not just that there's this profound language that's used and permeates the whole tradition. It's also that you might argue that, um, well, the biblical the biblical line is maybe here's a second line is that there is a doctrine of the intermediate state, and without the intermediate state. Uh, Or if there is an intermediate state, then we have to have something like a soul that makes sense of the intermediate state. And so that stands in the background, the background belief of all these theologians who definitively seem to affirm or assume some kind of soul as part and parcel of the constitution of the human. In light of, sorry, just to interrupt for for those of you who are listening, in, in light of passages like to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, that kind of idea, that's largely what's in mind when we're talking about the intermediate state between sure. the between time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. And like Charles Hodge says, Hodge would say, it's not a question of belief in the intermediate state. It's what you believe about the intermediate state that is the question. Everybody believes in the intermediate state. At least he's referencing the broader reform tradition. Um. But uh, so if we are going to make sense of that, to be apart from the body, you know, the body has different properties than the soul. The body actually goes into the grave, right? It becomes a corpse. It's a different kind of thing at that point. Mm. Then the person, if the person literally goes on without the body, well, then something has to make sense of the fact that the thing goes on without the body. And that seems to be the soul. And that's the assumption of the tradition, the wider tradition. Some will say, well, we need a soul at least for resurrection as well to make sense of personal identity, continuity. I think that's right. Um, The further idea is that this is, if it's not a dogmatic teaching, it's really, really, really close because it's an entailment from other doctrines like the intermediate state. But also, at least this is questionable in the Protestant tradition, but certainly in the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox traditions, Christ's descent in the um, Descent into hell is, um, I think, pretty clearly a dogmatic teaching within those circles, mm-hmm. which presumes, right, him being our sort of example of what it means to be human and, and the like. It at least minimally presumes this intermediate state doctrine that there is a soul that exists on and persists. And we have to make sense of that in some way without the body, as the body is a corpse. And so I think for all those um, reasons, And other, I think there's other reasons as well. I think those are in the background that say, you know, hold on. I, I wouldn't say that a physical, well, it depends on when you're asking. I'm not going to answer that question. Yeah, I would be. (laughs) I didn't ask it. Don't worry. (laughs) I was asking myself. I know. Um, I, I would be very reticent to be so open to the physicalists as being respectable orthodox or even biblical um, uh, approaches or um, appropriate approaches to understanding the human for mm-hmm. those, some of those reasons. And yeah, especially in light of the, there's a, there's been a large, like you already referenced, but there's been a large kind of embodiment conversation going on in theology um, 
trying to, again, make sense of some of the science that we see coming out, but at the same time trying to be thoughtful, truly, like truly thoughtful about a lot of the passages and the points that you've been bringing up. And so but let's say we are thoroughly convinced by by you <laughs> that there that there is a soul um, where the question and a long standing question and, you know, kind of the topic for the podcast is the origin of it. So where does it come from? How does the soul come about? And that has been um, a conversation in Christian theology for quite a while. So would you mind giving us kind of an idea of the spectrum or is it even a spectrum or are there just a bunch of different camps? What are some of the general thoughts like and I'm talking like big generalities, like what are some of the big camps on approaches to where the soul comes from at all? Yeah, yeah, good yeah, good question. Yeah, so all of these views, this whole discussion seems to presume that there is a soul. And, um, well, because of its its kind of radically different nature from the body in some respects, we have to make some sense out of the, the question, well, where does it come from, mm-hmm. right? Um, it doesn't seem to be the kind of thing that is certainly identical or reducible to its body or its brain, the neurology. Um so some sort of biological explanation would certainly seem to be out of bounds or at least insufficient for explaining the origins of the soul, right? Biological evolution, whatever you think about that or wherever you stand on that issue, it doesn't seem like that's a sufficient kind of means of generating a soul. It has um, significant problems with it, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. And and so that's why you have um, some contemporary um, believers of the soul today saying something like, um, uh, they affirm something like, well, God has to kind of put it there or something. He has to just kind of create it. Um, some call it kind of the zap view or uh, <laughs> some call it the, uh, the um, um, God has to kind of create the soul in the body or create the, bo- the, the soul and then attach it to the body. And so that um, brings us into some of the assumptions or intuitions that the uh, historical discussion is having about the soul. And uh, that would be crudely that uh, many would refer to that as kind of the creationist position. And that's one view on the origin of the soul. It would be historically called the creationist position, not to be confused with, you know, these other um, uh, discussions about how God creates the world or the origins of the universe and, you know, whether or not you affirm theistic evolution, evolutionary creationism, old earth progressive creationism, or even young earth uh, creationism. It's not to be confused with that. In fact, I think arguably a a sort of simple creationist view could be compatible with all those views. Um, It's simply the view that, Um, God is the kind of the end or the terminus, the end of the causal chain of the soul's existence, of coming into being. God brings about the soul directly and immediately in the causal chain of the human story. And so um, God either creates it in the body or creates the soul and then attaches it to a body in some in some form or fashion. But the the soul itself needs, in order to have a sufficient explanation, God is needed to be invoked in order to make sense of the causal uh, story that's told about the soul. So that would be 
broadly speaking, a kind of creationist view of the soul. And just so uh, we're clear, is that kind of comparable, like you were saying, to the, the 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 zap view, which I've never heard, but I love that term. Is that is that comparable to that, or are those two different things? Yeah, I would okay. say just making sure. Some creationist views as a zap view. I mean, some creationists hold to more complicated views that wouldn't wouldn't I guess fit so well with a zap, but. Um, <laughs> Um, I don't mind that. I don't mind that God zapped me. Um, uh, it means, you know, we must be pretty special beings for him to create us, right? That's one of the intuitions, obviously, that somebody like Calvin has in his institutes. He's a creationist. And um, so, uh, there's another view that's, relate, uh, that's related, that's common in the, tr- the wider tradition, um, and it's called the Traducian view. Uh, and so, if you read standard systematic theologies, at least his- historically, uh, many of them, I imagine, will start getting away from this because, well, they don't even believe in the soul anymore. So, it's kind of irrelevant to even talk about this discussion, really, to some extent, right? So, but um, historic systematics have um, this broad categorization of at least these two views and probably three different views. And then there's a, you know, a complex set of different ways of working out each one. But there's the Traducian view, which says something like um, there are uh, generative mechanisms that God creates that brings about the, um, the, the emergence of the soul from its uh, progenitors. And so, uh, there's different ways of thinking about this. You could think of souls as being the kinds of things that have parts, like bodies. That sounds a little that sounds a little physicalistic. I mean, Augustine sometimes talks like this when he talks about traducianism. Augustine himself goes back and forth between creationism and traducianism. Um, and then he finally says something like, you know, some kind of hybrid view may may make the best sense. And mm. he's unsatisfied with all of the views that he can clearly parse out. But he talks about souls sometimes as kind of having parts, like bodies have parts, that when you have a sufficient number of the right kinds of parts, soulish parts that come together from your your parental progenitors, then you have this new thing that pops up or comes into being. And so um, you might think of it that way. You might think of it as more like atoms splitting off. If you have these atoms, right? That can split off. The soul might be something like this when uh, the gametes meet and um, the progenitors bring or give some sort of physical um, genetic material that coinciding with that, there is this soulish material um, or soulish uh, stuff that splits off from the parents or from the father, depending on who you're reading. And that brings about a wholly new soul that's uh, attached to that body that the progenitors um, give off from the procreative process. And so you can see already that on that picture, at least on the surface, it begins to look already a bit more integrated mm-hmm. in terms of how the body and the soul might be together. And so um, certainly uh, in contemporary times, for those who stu- still believe in a soul, traducianism has really become quite popular and a lot of contemporary theologians have, have been taking and picking up traducianism and, and developing it in interesting ways. Creationism has become less popular, but it's still around. 
Uh, interestingly, historically, creationism has been the dominant view throughout church history, especially in the medieval times. In Roman Catholicism, it is dominant. In fact, if you read the Catechism, it says, um, you know, it basically expounds creationist view. Although it, it could, you could have a more complicated creationist view. And then in the Reformed tradition, creationism has been dominant. Maybe in the Lutheran tradition, traditionism has been dominant. There's a third kind of view as well that's much more platonic or um, and um, uh, origin the um, held to something like this view. Uh, you could call it the pre-existence view of the soul, and the pre-existence view of the soul says something like this: that um, that our souls. Um, we either created at some point in time, they were created prior to the body. So even prior to sort of our biological origins, mm -hmm. the soul exists, maybe in some sort of heavenly state or in some sort of platonic heaven as an abstract that um, somehow maybe after the fall kind of um, descends and some of these stories are told that the, the soul then descends to be in the body in a kind of this denigrated state that's one way of thinking about it. But that's another view that the pre-existence view that the soul pre-exists the body or biological history and biological origins and exists in some other state. And, um, and um, maybe it existed eternally in heaven with God, or it existed in some sort of abstract way in God's mind or something like that. And um, certainly Origen and Plato held something like this view, and some early Christians held this view. Um, some more mystical Christians held this view. Uh, and this, this becomes a kind of um, a third view that isn't really very popular today, I don't think. Um, in fact, uh, I put together a collection on the origin of the soul. We just submitted the book. And... Um, it's a discussion of, of various views. Five years ago, we were looking for somebody who would defend some sort of <laughs> existence view. I was trying to find somebody. I thought, surely somebody believes this or at least could offer up some kind of defense of it. But I had a really hard time finding anyone. Have but, you um, seen the movie Soul? Uh, the animated movie? Yes. Yeah, it's great. So... Again, you used the word crudely earlier, and that would be very applicable to this. But crudely, that's kind of this idea, right? That there's all these souls in this different dimension or something that then get affixed to a body for whatever reason. You know, like, I mean, there's a variety of views. I, again, crude, but it's that kind of idea, right? Yeah, actually, that's right. That would be a so. Good there you go, Pixar. They could have I been like the ones for your book. <laughs> yeah, that would sell a lot more. <laughs> God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person 
place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Cat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. <laughs> so how do these different interpretations, I mean, you've talked a little, you've talked actually a lot about the history of it, but what is it, what are, you know, I mean, if we're talking about a, a biblical approach as well, like as theological, what are the passages that that are making people think differently? Or is it really just very linked to one's philosophy? And there aren't, you know, I don't even necessarily want proof text passages, but concepts in scripture. Or is it really just more a philosophical approach to the world? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that's a good question. I was just trying to think back to um, the different passages of scripture, but there are, um, there have been a lot of uh, biblical exegetical cases made uh, for both views throughout church history. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure that um, they're decisive in favor of either creationism or traducianism. Certainly, I find pre-existence kind of implausible. I mean, I th- maybe maybe we could make sense of it, but I find either creationism or traducianism to be more plausible um, as as frameworks for reading the Bible. Uh, so, on the creationist side. There are several lines of reasoning that you might invoke to make sense of creationism. And I'm not sure, even, even from a theological sort of interpretation perspective, that we could make a definitive case either way. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, maybe some exegetical argument will come up that will suggest otherwise. But a creationism, certainly um, there's the story of um, God kind of making dead bones live Mm -hmm. and kind of there's this animating picture that's often used in um, uh, readings of, of church history that would use that as a picture to make sense of, yeah, this is basically how God makes sense of the human person. He basically makes this, the, the bones alive with the soul. And so he informs the, the bones and brings them to life. And so you have that clear picture in in, um, in scripture. And um, it's a common, I think, kind of picture that we see in, in the Old Testament where God brings to life something that's dead. Well, you, I you, mean, you would even, would they also use Genesis 1? I mean, God breathing into the dust, you know, and creating Adam? Yeah. Yeah, actually, I think so. Yeah, Genesis, yes, particularly Genesis 2, 7, um, Two, four to seven, that whole picture where, uh, uh, you know, uh, God breathes into uh, the the dust and makes it alive. I think um, Ruach there, um, Richard Steiner actually suggests this. This is really actually quite unpopular in biblical interpretation, it seems. I mean, I'm not actually, I'm not sure that there's any definitive. some will say that this kind of re- like Alistair McGrath says, this kind of reading is ancient reading. Like mm-hmm. the early um, Christians, um, Eastern Christians would read this way. Uh, they would read into it kind of this dichotomy or even this trichotomy position. And um, 
And uh, it's a common way of reading that passage. But Richard Steiner, the Old Testament scholar, he actually he's he's actually picking up on Nefesh, and he's mm-hmm. doing a pretty detailed sort of word study and theological um, assessment of of Nefesh in um, in Ezekiel. But he also picks up on Nefesh in other contexts as well as Ruach, which is used in the Genesis two passage. And he says, actually, this this makes a lot of sense of the ancient world and how it is that many interpreters of the Bible throughout history have interpreted Genesis 2. It's not that foreign. And in fact, it makes it it does um, lend credence to a kind of dichotomous or even dualistic picture of the human person, wherein God is literally fashioning the body and then bringing life to it by breathing into it this new type of thing, this soul, this substance. He says, so this isn't really all that foreign. He doesn't lay all his weight on that particular passage, but um, it's um, it's consistent, he says, with kind of the Ecclesiastes 12.7 reading that's very dualistic, where we have this body that goes into the ground as a corpse, and then the soul goes up to be with God in heaven. And so, you have this um, uh, common interpretation of, of Genesis 2-7, reading with other passages in Scripture as a as a as a um, a clear picture of the soul has its own origins and the body has a distinct set of origins. They closely overlap in that God is fashioning both of them in a sense, um, but there's there's something distinct about the activity of the soul coming into being, and so that picture is is quite a profound picture, I think, that uh, many early interpreters and later interpreters pick up on and read the scriptures in, in that light. And I think that becomes an interesting picture, especially with bringing dead bones to life, of redemption, where divine action mm-hmm. becomes a picture of redemption. And, uh, so, this, I, this whole creationist um, picture. So, I think that's one line of reasoning that one could take in in kind of reading the Bible in favor of, of creationism. Um, what about actually, for traducianism? Yeah, traducianism. So, um, there are several lines. Um, certainly, um, there are several passages in, in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, that speak of us being in the loins of our uh, fathers. Mm-hmm. Right, almost in a sense pre-existing, not pre-existing in the sort of Originian or sort of Platonic sense, but uh, pre-existing um, as kind of part of the procreative of process, like you said earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but there's a real sense in which we exist as a communal whole or uh, as as part of the family, and so you have this strong covenantal language in um, the Old Testament that's suggestive of the fact that we pre-exist in our parents already, and that um, that, that creates a strong continuity link between, um, between the whole of the human race as a, as a product of our parents. And so, you might, you might take that line and say, well, this makes sense of the fact that our parents really are true causes of the soul, that they have a real causal process. Um, part in bringing about new souls into the world. And uh, certainly that would make sense of other passages of scripture where there is this continuous line between parents, uh, progenitors, and their offspring, as well as the, the generation of the Imago Dei in the Old Testament, which seems to be suggestive in lots of places, like in Genesis 5, 
right, where it talks about the Imago Dei uh, or the image being in the image of the Father mm-hmm. as a kind of generative link between um, per- parents and offspring. Um, so I think conceptually that's there. You you have that in other places also, especially when we get into discussions about Adamic um, humanity, uh, Adam's relationship to the rest of humanity, and then Christ's relationship to the rest of humanity in Romans. When we start thinking about the original um, sin discussion, however you make sense of original sin, as being something that is somehow transmitted through some sort of generative process, well, if you actually affirm that, well, the tradition view actually seems to make a lot more sense on the surface. It seems to be more intuitive of the fact that if we are parts of our parents, that the, the whole generative process that brings us about also is the mechanism that transmits original sin, that connects us to the um, the guilt of our fathers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that would be uh, a couple of different lines in favor of traducianism. Certainly, um, from a theological perspective, it seems to make more natural sense of original sin's transmission. Yeah. So, so we've got Traducianism and creationism, as you said, are two of the key approaches. You know, you also have the preexistence of the soul, which you introduced and kind of shared that you don't feel like it's quite as, you know, biblically defensible. So if... um, And I think most people would agree with me. Yeah, well, fair enough. Except for maybe the Pixar people. I don't know. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) No, but the... So for anybody who's listening and thinking, okay, well, I'm hearing, especially if Augustine, who it seems like lots of people really respect, would was kind of vacillating between the two of them, then is there a way that I can go wrong in thinking about the origin of the soul? You know, I, I oftentimes, I, a lot of the people that we teach at our church, they're kind of like, they're, they're always like, I don't want to be a heretic. Just tell me how to not be a heretic. <laughs> and so, yeah. um, I mean, we can, you know, not get into all the things that are involved in actually being labeled a heretic, but, but are there, is there anything that you would say as we're thinking through and as people are thinking through different opinions and different interpretations of these passages on the origin of the soul where you'd say, yeah, this is out of bounds. I mean, I think we've kind of touched on a couple, right? Physicalism, which is just that everything is material. There's nothing else, um, yes. p- perhaps even pre-existence. But can you just speak to that a little bit as we kind of round out our conversation? Sure. Yeah, I think there are some unorthodox positions or positions at least that are out of bounds in the origin of the soul discussion. Um, there um, there are a variety of, uh, well, there's a couple things. There are a variety of new positions right now that are um, working within a broader materialist framework that the soul emerges from the body. Mm-hmm. I, think, um, I think for some of the reasons we've mentioned already, that would be at least on the fringe of acceptable um, at a minimum. I think there's other things we could say about why they're problematic, but I think they at least be on the fringe because there's no sort of clear um, link back to God in the way that the tradition has been reflecting on the nature of the soul and its generation um, or its um, originative um, generation. But uh, the pre-existence view, I think, is is potentially problematic as well and would, would be outside the bounds. There's a lot of new discussions right now within um, – consciousness that are kind of hearkening back to sort of pagan views of persons as well as 
Um, maybe you would call them more occultic views of persons. And I think, um, um, gosh, this is opening up a whole big discussion um, uh, that we don't have time to get into. But the um, there's a reason I think the pre-existence view has been so closely aligned with some of the mystical theologians who have always been considered on the fringe within the church tradition. Hmm. And um, um, there's... Um, there's a kind of tendency with, I'm summing up a lot, and this may be uncharitable to some extent, but there's a tendency to read some of these mystical theologians as, as blurring the lines between the creator and creature, right? And I think that's a clear sort of demarcation that we want to maintain in our theological anthropology. We want to maintain a clear creator-creature distinction, even if we have a robust view of the human as being the kind of thing that experiences God and becomes something like God that's different from even the way we think about humans being like God presently, there's a kind of tendency to blur the distinctions to such an extent to eschew the the identity of individual persons, for one thing, but also to eschew the identity of creatures in light of their 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 creator as kind of existing in this mass. And this, this um, analogy is not uncommonly used amongst those who sit on the fringe of Christian orthodoxy. They will often describe um, the preexistent soul as something that's trying to find its way back to this sort of massive body of water referring to God and, and kind of become, you know, as a droplet kind of become part of the water once mm-hmm. again. Right. So you have actually, I think there, um, as um, pantheism and panentheism mm-hmm. are becoming more, even more attractive today in uh, wider science and religion discussions, even on the fringe of, fringe of Christian theological discussions, there is this tendency to askew the identity of the soul as um, um, kind of already part of God in some way in a um, in a real ontological sense that excuse the creator-creature distinction. Hmm. And so I think the pre-existence view of the soul or various views of the soul come really often come really close to that. And sometimes they just jump on, jump in um, full on in, in that sort of view. They have more of a pantheistic, even some have more of a pantheistic conception of the human person as um, where there is no real um a real distinction between the creator and creature. And I think that's dangerous. So uh, for those reasons, at least that's one reason I would say um, I'm pretty hesitant about the preexistence view amongst other, amongst other reasons. Mm -hmm. But I think that's one good reason um, that uh, we should consider. Yeah. 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 So we are out of time, but just to kind of round out everything that we're talking about, um, that we have talk- touched on. The soul is something that there are a lot of people talking about whether or not they even believe that it's a thing anymore. And so we've talked about the reasons that it does seem that there, scripture is very clear that there is some, at least some immaterial dimension to our being and to um, creation. And so we have to recognize that uh, as believers. And then even further, it does seem like the Christian tradition 
has been very clear that there is an immaterial dimension of the human being themselves and that the soul is often ascribed to that idea. And the but where the soul itself comes from <laughs> is kind of up for debate there, especially with creationism and uh like uh, Joshua has distinguished it apart from the evolutionary conversation, uh, the creationist perspective and the Traducian perspective, both of them seem to have legitimate biblical grounds. And, you know, like we said, even Augustine was kind of going back and forth between them. And so both of them seem very much within bounds, but we wouldn't want to go too far to kind of a reductive physicalism that says there's absolutely nothing that's immaterial. And we wouldn't want to go to, um, the panentheism that he was talking about. And yeah, those are probably the the big spectrums we want to stay away from. But Joshua, thank you. I just wanted to round out everything because we were, we were all over. <laughs> but I yes. really want to thank you for your time. We really appreciate your observations and just the time in your own life and your own study that you've taken to serve the church in this way and to learn these things and to think about these things. So thank you, but also for the time with us today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Kimberly. Absolutely. And we just want to thank you who are listening. And we want to ask you to be sure next time to join us when we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.